Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Thanks for joining us on this, our 135th episode. Yes, thanks for joining us. We want to start by telling you that Behavioral Grooves was recently named a Global Top 20 podcast in social science by Chartable. It seems like we are doing something right in our effort to expand the community of people interested in behavioral science as our downloads in 2020 are up 82% over the same period in 2019. Yeah, that's great. We should also say that part of that is because we released more episodes in 2020 than we did during the same period in 2019. But our per episode downloads are up almost 50%, and that's a lot of growth. Yeah, so the episode growth is fantastic, and our subscriber base is growing, and we're really, really grateful for that. And by the way, we're still advertiser-free. Yeah, and that means we can say whatever the hell we want because we don't have a sponsor trying to tell us how to run our show. Now, we'd say whatever the hell we want anyway, but (laughs) but if you would like to be a sponsor, we'd be happy to have that conversation with you, okay? (laughs) And and our contact information is in the notes, but there's an easier way of being able to help us out and to sponsor us, right? You don't have to sponsor an episode. You could just sponsor us in general. We are excited to announce that we just launched a Patreon campaign where you can donate to help us offset some of the hard costs of producing the show. On average, each hour of the produced show takes between eight and 10 hours of our combined work between Tim and me, uh, between research, preparation, interview recording, post-production for intros in our grooving session, editing and hosting. Yeah, and beyond the documents that we create for all this, we also develop episode notes that feature, on average, a dozen links to behavioral science resources and half a dozen musical references. You like those musical references, don't you, Tim? Damn right I do. And I think maybe some of our (laughs) listeners might. Well, maybe. Maybe they don't. Maybe. Maybe some. (laughs) But for over two years, we've been doing this work without uh, any kind of monetary support. Additionally, we incur hosting fees, website design and maintenance, transcription costs, and storage space for the terabytes of data that goes into every episode. Now, this isn't to sit here and whine over this. We love this. We we enjoy doing this. Uh, But if you do think that this is valuable and you would like to support us, your patronage would be very, very much appreciated. Uh, So you can go out and see the different levels that we have in the Patreon campaign. You get different little goodies uh, at different levels that you uh, donate to. Uh, And some of them are pretty fun. And some of the bonuses are pretty cool. Uh, At least we think so. Maybe, maybe so. so. And so you can go check us out at www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves. And we'll have that link in the show notes. Yeah, definitely check out the episode notes. Uh, also check out the musical themes in the tears. They're, they're musical really themes cool. in the tears. Yeah. yeah. No, Just, we would never do such a thing like that. You got it. You got to go check it out. Yeah. They are fun. pretty fun. They are pretty fun, but let's keep moving on. Okay. We're here today to share the conversation we had with Stuart King, the founder of BZ Bodies, which is a behavioral change company that focuses on weight management based in the UK. Busybodies engages adults, kids, and even dogs to make behavior changes that will enable people to lose weight. Did you say dogs? I did say dogs. (laughs) You know, it's all about the dogs, man. No, actually, it's it's not really about the dogs. It's about people. But you'll have to listen to our conversation to hear about that. 
I'm just kind of thinking that's got to be the first time that we've ever talked about dogs on behavioral grooves. Well, at least in regards <laughs> to behavior change, I, I know <laughs> that's for sure. We, we're, we're not a dog behavior change company. We are a podcast. We're people people podcast all right (laughs) okay good. let's get off get back on track here we want to let you know that we recorded this just a few days after the world health organization had declared their coronavirus a pandemic but before countries like italy and spain had gone into major lockdown Uh, so we discussed the pandemic a little bit but most of the episode focused on other behavioral science aspects we thought it would be important for you to know that because as we like to say context matters. It sure does. So Stuart and Kurt and I talked about aspects of behavior change initiatives that we just found really interesting. For instance, we talked about the whole systems approach, which is really finding a a meaningful uh, ledge right now in the UK methodologies. And we also love talking to Stuart about how context is the key to making behavior change interventions meaningful. We also talked about segmentation and the importance of using his home life as the center for his work. It was very, very cool. It was. And we want to thank our listeners for helping us become a global top 20 social science podcast. Thank you. Did you say global? Like as in like the whole world, right? The whole world, Tim. Not just, not just Minneapolis, not just Minnesota, (laughs) not just the United States. Global, that big blue dot that floats out there in space. That's, that's what we're, we're a top 20, at least according to Chartable. Uh, And if you'd like to share this top 20 podcast with a friend or a colleague or with your students, you can direct them to our website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or to Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever other podcast thing that you listen to, uh, <laughs> we would appreciate that. That devolved pretty nicely. Uh, so <laughs> thanks for listening. And with that, we hope you sit back with a glass teeming with self-deprecating British humor and laugh <laughs> a bit with us as we spoke with Stuart King. Stuart King, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Hi, guys. I'm so excited to be here. All right. Oh, it's, it's terrific to have you here. We are excited to have you here. So uh, as as you know, if you've listened to this, we usually start with a speed round. So I think we'll, we'll start with that. Tim, you got the first question. Coffee or tea? Now, I'm a fan of the show, so I've been listening. Uh, it's both. I'm sorry. And it even goes further. Oh, I'm sorry. It's coffee, no. coffee in the mornings. Okay. Tea, tea in the afternoon, especially if I'm dunking biscuits into it. But I want to blow your minds. If you haven't tried Lady Grey tea, get yourself some Lady Grey tea because that is the uh, oh, that's the best. Lady Grey. Lady Grey. I know it sounds. Does that have it sounds bergamot? It, it does have some of that, but it's it's actually a citrusy finish. It's lovely. Is and it? I, if All my right. friends listen to this, which they probably won't, but if they do, then I'm going to get it now. That's that's it. <laughs> I'm on well, it. I, I, I love I'm it. hoping that it's available in the states. So I, I will. Sure I will, will tea be. is tea is uh, tea is mine as well. And so then I'm in the evening, like you, you yeah. have morning morning coffee, tea in the afternoon, and then the evening. What's the evening? Uh, is that is that beer? Is that mm, wine? No. Is it uh, no? I, I don't really drink in the week. I'll only drink if I'm going out somewhere or whatever. I don't just sit at home with a beer unless well, sometimes. But really, just tea and squash juice, whatever. You know, like. <laughs> I'm pretty boring, really. 
Uh, Do you start your tea at tea time? No. Is it? No. <laughs> no. No, 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 hey, no. Normally, I'll tell you when I normally, I'll go and make drinks when I'm procrastinating, when I'm supposed to be doing something important. <laughs> I'll go and make some tea. I, oh, do, I, I, do, the exact, yeah. I do the exact same oh. team. It's like, oh, I should, oh, but no, I'm kind of thirsty. What do I need? Yeah, I need yeah, to go yeah, down yeah. get some Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. This is supposed to be a speed Sorry, round. Speed Sorry, round. We, are, we are not speedy at this at all. All right, so bike or unicycle? I don't know who's saying unicycle. I mean, unicycle, and I'm not even saying bike. I'm saying tandem because I, well, actually, a tandem, which is a triple bike. I'll send you a picture of this, guys. All right. Put it in your show notes. I rode from Ratlands End to John O'Groats on a triple bike, so three of us on one bike with two wheels. So, I'm I'm saying tandem. Now that answer's never come up. Come on. You know, I will, I will probably guarantee that we could ask, you know, bike, unicycle, tandem, and nobody would ever pick. Well, actually, they might just because it was so unique that they yeah, go, oh, yeah. that's interesting. All right. Yeah. Would you prefer to give up your laptop or your mobile phone for a year? I, th I think I should give up my mobile phone, but I would give up my laptop. Oh, wow. wow. I, like the, I like the normative piece there of what I should do versus what I would do. That was the <laughs> well, I think it's good. better for me. I spend so much time on my phone that I yeah. think it's better for me if I didn't have one. And I have tried that. I tried a behavioral experiment of getting rid of a phone and having a phone that had no data, no internet on it so that it would stop distracting me from working. And how, did, and how did that work? Um, it worked. Well, I had to go through stages of the experiment for a start. I, um, I had to... At first, I thought I would just put my phone in the house because when I'm trying to write the book, I, I you know, I, 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 I'm so easily distracted. I've got ADHD as well, so it's even worse. Like, I'm distracted at a moment's notice. Um, and I bought an, uh, well, I tried to do it without. And then I said, no, 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 I'm the, you know, I'm, I run a company. People have got to be able to get hold of me. You know, all this self-important rubbish. And then, um, so I bought a Nokia 3310, a classic um, okay. no, no data on it. So I said, right, anyone who needs to get hold of me can call me or text me, but um, in the end, that experiment didn't work because I, I, I think I just let it let it fail, you know, quite willingly. I, I sort of like having my phone around. <laughs> That's what I mean, I should get rid of my phone. I, you know, and, and again, the speed round is not speedy, so I apologize for all of our listeners who are like, <laughs> no, just get to the damn interview. Let's go. No. Slowest speed round we've ever had. <laughs> sorry, yeah, sorry. No, but but recently, I for whatever reason, somehow Facebook got. Uh, taken off of my phone and when i put it back on i didn't have the the uh you know password for it so i i don't have facebook on my phone mm. it's amazing how much more productive i am without facebook on my phone and going through those so wow wow i'm thinking of doing the same thing of twitter on my phone accidentally erasing it from there and seeing if it just stays good, off good luck on that man you are <laughs> dr twitter I know. all right all right so last last speed around question all right finally so <laughs> All right. Behavior change through education only or change through a systematic approach looking at social, environmental and other interventions? The, the answer is too obvious, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we we, we do these lead-in questions at the end, right? It's okay. okay. <laughs> too easy. The second one. Yeah. So so with that, Stuart, I, I, I know, you know, I, that's a leading question because I think we'll we'll start talking about you know your your methodology about how to drive behavior change and, and using behavioral science and in kind of these these things. But give give our listeners a little bit of background about who you are and what got you interested in behavioral science. Okay, um, cool. I, I um, so my my background was in um, 
intervention design for um, obesity. So I started out working with children and young people in schools and uh, it was all about trying to, you know, I very much started out with some psychological underpinning to the program, but really it was um, showing them what to do and taking them and doing stuff and, and thinking if they, you know, if they enjoy it, they'll, they'll probably go and do it afterwards. It, it didn't happen. Um, but the, you know, that was the start of, um, working in, in, I suppose, public health. It was, it wasn't really truly public health then. But then I, then I created a, um, a program called Busybodies, which is now the name of our um, business. But Busybodies was a, a family weight management intervention. So what we call that is a tier two intervention. So that's directly trying to change people's behaviour so that they actively, well, not lose weight in children unless they need to, but realistically, sort of, you know, manage and grow into their weight. And that had a lot more behavioural science before we called it behavioural science in it. Right. Um, but it also had a lot of sociology in it. So I did a master's in physical activity, health and well-being whilst I was running Busy Bodies. And I met a lecturer called um, Peter Craig, who's worked with me ever since. So that was in 2006. Um, okay. and, and Peter and I have worked together ever since. And that was really about creating um, social, you know, bringing sociology into the into the mix, because I, I heard about this theory called habitus by a, um, a, a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu. And it just made so much sense in the context of actually trying to help people change their behavior. Because my background is in physiology. So I was sort of, you know, coming at it from quite a, a, a data driven and physiological perspective, but that didn't matter at all. People didn't care. Um, and so basically what I did was I, I've just failed my way through loads of different interventions until we found some stuff that worked, some of which we did on purpose and some of which we had to go back and, and you know, retrofit. What, why did that work so well? And, we, and we've worked out, you know, why it works well now. Now we can use that a lot more prospectively. Um, but whilst I was doing that, I also then went and worked in the public health system in the NHS and then into the local authority because that the NHS, um, you know, public health moved into the local authority whilst I was working there. Um, and that was really sort of designing interventions at a local level and doing local policy. Then I moved into the national team as a, as a senior scientist in public health England in the diet and obesity team. Uh, and that was a, sort of policy on a national level and working, um, you know, with all the, the large providers around the country, talking about obesity from a, a much, much larger perspective. And then I became an, a national implementation manager, which is... Um, which is really about it's a senior civil service job and it's about trying what that job was particularly um doing all of the um or, or supporting the team i suppose to do all of the engagement work going around the country and, and talking to people around the country and all the different public health teams uh, about physical activity mainly and then creating the everybody active every day um guidance and doing the launch with the minister and various other people that were sort of launching that and then just after that, I left uh, my company, Busybodies, had been growing uh, as, as we as I did that on the side. Uh, and that grew to a size of about 16 people. So it sort of it got big enough that it needed me to come into it full time. Uh, and or did I just need to go into it? I can't I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I chose to go into it. And, and that's where I am now. So, so now I am the chief exec and well, chief executive officer and head of distraction at Busybodies, which is a um, behavior change company. We focus mainly on weight management. So that's where we're right, so, so I have to ask the head of distraction, right? Yes, the, yeah. You know, most, most executives don't want people to be distracted. They want them to focus in. So yeah. help us. What, what, what got the head of <laughs> distraction as, as a title? Oh, it's not my choice, really, actually. Um, it's, it, <laughs> I'll tell you where I got it from. I went and spent some time with um, Rich 
um, Rich Sheridan from Menlo Innovations, which are, who are based in Michigan, um, in Ann Arbor, um, because I love their company. Really, I've interviewed him on my behavioral science show, my podcast, and I, and I, I just love the work they do. I think it's great. Uh, and, and I actually just completely stole the idea uh, from him and of this sort of a, a name that describes you and a name that describes your job. I love that. So everyone in our company now has two names and mine was given to me, um, which is head of distraction. And that's twofold, really, because I love... I love the people we work with so much that when I go into the offices, I can't help but go and spend time with them and I distract them. But yeah. I'm also so easily distracted as well that, you know, it's, it's got a sort of two meanings, that title. I love it. Mm. Absolutely love it. So it, it, what you're describing sounds like your interest in behavioral science came out as a result of the kind of work that you wanted to do. And the reason that I bring that up is because so many people that we talk to get interested in behavioral science because of the science or because of the results that they see. And then that leads them into the work. But it sounds like it was just the opposite for you. Yeah, I would say that's true, actually, because I um, it was when I, when I started to when I even heard of, in fact, behavioral economics was the first entry point to it. And that was when I was working in Public Health England with um, Ch Tim Chadbourne, who is the head of. Um, behavioural insights at Public Health England. So we were doing some work. We were doing some work together on the National Child Measurement Programme, which is a huge um, data set that we collect here in the UK um, of children who are aged round about five and round about ten or eleven, um, so that we have really good obesity data at, at those age groups. Um, and they were doing some framing. Um, message, framing and messaging uh, experiments through, you know, how to get better uptake into interventions as a result. But at, at the scale that they were doing it, you know, it was it was huge. And I then got into behavioral economics through Dan Ariely, who I think is like a gateway drug into behavioral economics and stuff. Often and is, often is, yes. I just, I just loved it. Yeah, <laughs> all of the stuff that he's done, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, and then started, you know, re it, the reason it clicked with me so heavily was because I'd spent, you know, ten years or or slightly more doing a lot of this stuff but not having it there was no nomenclature for me there was i mean it existed but it didn't make any sense in terms of any sort of you know obvious evidence base so so when i started to really understand all of the behavioral economics and then the broader behavioral science and, and behavior change sort of science that sits around that it just made so much sense to me that i loved it and i became completely obsessed and read about it voraciously i would say i'm the least qualified person you've had on your show and i've and i listened to your show so i, I can say that with some some oh, oh no we, we have tim on the show so well, yeah, I'm uh, I'm exactly i'm on the show all all the time we, we, we try, i'm the least know, i've been trying to get them. every episode that's, that's i'm joking I, tim. I am joking you know for people and i, I know i give Tim a hard time. It's all unjust. We we appreciate that. So I, I want to ask you, Stuart, because like, there's an interesting piece because you you seem like you've worked both on large scale policy initiatives that are broad across you know the UK, and yet your 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 company is working more on individuals or family based uh, interventions. Where, where do you see is is there crossover in in what you're doing in both of those arenas? Is it just a matter of scale, or or are there actually very different interventions and and processes that you go through in in looking at that it's, it's a great question um kurt and I, I think the the point is that you need both um because we're, we're really we're really sort of obsessed over here at the moment with whole systems approaches and um you know defining 
what that means. So at what level of the system are we acting and what is the most appropriate way to act at that level of the system? Yeah. But what, what I've always found is that there's, there's a big mismatch between what, what national level government are doing, what local, local level government are doing and what people experience on the ground. I've always, always found that. And it's always been my driving passion is to try and bridge the gap between what I see people in their lived experience and everyday realities going through and, you know, the, the type of change that they need and what's going on at a national level. So even working at Public Health England, I was trying to describe what the, what the local, the hyper local experience is like for people and where are we linking this up? And the other way around, again, you know, this is what people are experiencing. So what do we need to do across the system to be able to create change that actually works and it complements the change not not sort of very often what people need is blocked by by bureaucracy so we need to try and link them up in a much better way and that, that is starting to happen here but it's still a big piece of work and, and you know there's a lot of people a lot of smart people working on not much smarter than me i love that you you speak to something that's really near and dear to kurtz in my heart and that is starting with when we look at behavior change rather than thinking about well, where do we want people to be let's start with where they are yeah and and you seem to embody this. Let's just look at the feet on the ground. What's going on in the household? What's going on in the home? And work from there. So is that informing more of the work that you're doing today? It informs everything I always do because if it doesn't, what's the point? That's my, my main sort of, uh, my, my, my thought process. And not everyone gets this fair enough. It's not it's not for everyone. But my everything I do is 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 based around making that thing work at the level of the person and, and so even the the uh, my podcast that i started um you know not necessarily qualified to run a behavioral science podcast but i seem to have done it <laughs> yeah, 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 it works but the 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 whole aim was to again link up there's lots of really smart people academics really great people in, in industry and, and in government but how to make that really accessible for both professionals who haven't got a grounding in behavioral science, like myself, for example. So I'm basically doing it for myself. Um, but also, why does that actually matter to anyone? Because if it doesn't land in the real world and make a positive impact on it, then it's got no value to me. And, and I just don't understand this notion of doing doing work for its own sake or do, you know for doing work, academic stuff that doesn't have any meaning in the real world. That's it's just a real bugbear of mine. Well, and I think you, again, talk to this point that Tim and I have seen a lot with going into organizations and doing the work that we do inside of organizations is that the executives and the leaders inside those organizations, you know, go, great, behavioral science is wonderful, but how do we actually, why do we care about it? Right. It, it, to your point, you can have some fantastic research about why people do things in various different aspects, but if it doesn't actually parlay into changing the behavior of the people in the way that they want or impacting them somehow in, in a real world manner, they're not going to care. And, and you have to be able to either translate that because sometimes there is real world application. It's just that there's a miscommunication between the research speak and the real world talk that goes on. Yeah. Um, but then there's also some of these like how do you then take that and apply it in a way that that makes sense? So I applaud right. you for for doing that because I think it's one of the biggest challenges that we see too uh, in, in yeah. the work that we do. So it's like, it's like you need a gatekeeper almost. It's, it, it, you need someone who's willing. And, and I think what, what this comes down to for me, and I say I say this quite a lot, is 
you can be a really good behavioral scientist, but if you if you lack deep domain knowledge, then it, it really is difficult to apply in a meaningful way. Because if you think you can go and ask people what, you know, what they need, and then as a behavioral scientist, you can start to provide it. You, you just can't, you, ju you have to observe people. You have to know the nuance behind all of the different things. If I ask people, well, what, what do you want me to provide you? They say, oh, yeah. I just need some recipes and a, and a fitness plan. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, great. And we have to go along with that because you know you've got to give people what they think they want but at the same time we're we're working at the level of things like interpersonal relationships conflict resolution that type of stuff because those are the things that are going to ultimately be barriers to change and so we, we try and upskill people in those types of things because that's actually what matters in the real world i couldn't have said it better i think that is key and not only just in in what you're doing but it also in in i think anybody anybody that is utilizing behavioral science in any arena where they're trying to apply it that is so so true so mm -hmm. yeah in your world what do you think are the biggest factors that prevent people from sustaining behavior change um that's a small and easy question to answer tim people that was sarcasm i believe uh, <laughs> I, I, i'll tell you what i i can this is probably moving on to an area that, that we would have covered anyway, but the, the best way I can describe it is that, and this is from, you know, from reading, reading papers, reading um, government guidance, speaking to behavioral scientists, speaking to sociologists and spend and working with thousands of people over the years, right. it, everything boils down to these three. This is, this is the content of my book here in, in, <laughs> in a very small way, but everything boils down to three universal truths for me. And, and the first one is that people aren't as rational as they like to think. Um, and I don't need to make that point to you guys or to people who listen to this show, I'm sure, but we don't just tell people that we show them that. So we do experiments with them so that they feel there's a, they have a visceral sort of feeling of having been fooled or duped or manipulated in some way. And all we do is we do live experiments that, that I've taken from Dan Ariely's books. And I just run that on them. And it's a different thing being told something than actually feeling the shock of, you know, oh God, I was manipulated into this. So we just do like an anchoring experiment and we do some choice architecture stuff. It's, it's, it's actually a lot of fun. And then the second universal truth is that there are two selves. There's a planning self and a doing self. Um, and the planning self is the very rational one that makes all these different you know, plans about how they're gonna lose weight or how they're gonna uh, get up early and go to the gym or whatever, you know, all these different plans that people make. And then there's the lived experience or the doing self. And if you like, this is sort of the, the sort of um, Daniel Kahneman's system one, system two stuff uh, built up into this. And when, uh, when you have your, you know, the, the, the doing self is the person who's running late because they've got, they have to stay late at work or they're, they're kids just been sick on the carpet and they've got to sort that out and they now can't do what they wanted to do. They can't get to the gym or whatever. And when that happens, when the planners plans aren't realized in the real world, you get to the third universal truth, which is the, what the hell effect. And then obviously you, you, you either say goodbye to your plan for that day and say, oh, I'll start again tomorrow. Or very often you say, I'll start again Monday. And then, you know, once you've said, I'll start again, you start to really enjoy that. So if you're on a diet and you, you end up sort of having a bit of cake and thinking, oh, what the hell, I might as well have a whole beer. And then you think, well, since I'm starting again tomorrow, I may as well go and get a takeaway and have a couple of beers as well when I get home. And, you know, so, so that's how, that's our, that's my, that's my sort of really basic summary of most people's attempts at change. And that's, that's our starting point that we, we try and take people through, you know, let's, let's make experiments. Let's run experiments together that, that take into account the lived experience and let's re recast what failure means because Failure isn't stopping the thing or, or making a mistake. It's 
it, it, failure is where all the good information is. If you mess something up because you planned something and you you, you lived, you know, your experience was different to that. Um, that's just a factor of the fact that we just we just don't know all of the things that impact our behaviours throughout the day. We're so habitual and there's so many unknowns yeah. that, that things are going to happen. You are going to fail. So, so forget the fact that you're just going to run this perfectly. When you fail, where's the really interesting information in that? And that, that's the reason that you failed. And what would you do differently next time? So yeah. we, we run experiments with people and we say, it's, you know, if, if what, di what didn't work, and what would you do differently next time? That's that's where the thing. And you might run six or seven experiments just to change one thing. But if you truly yeah. change it, then it's actually worth all that effort. So so do you have a video camera in my house? Because you kind of described exactly <laughs> what I go through here yeah, when I'm trying yeah. to, you know, it's, no, no it's, I think that's, that's fantastic. So, um, you know, as you think about that, then what are what are the things that people need to do then given that these three universal truths are there in order to to actually make that sustainable change what are the what are the things that we have to take into account on a daily basis as we're thinking about this you talked a lot about experimenting in multitude of times and looking at various different pieces of this but but what have you learned in in the years that you've been working in this field and and what people are doing particularly as it relates to weight management but i'm assuming that a lot of these truths can be applied just abroad to any type of change that you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I think these apply to almost all efforts to change because change is a process of trying to do to, to, to put something else in place ahead of what your current, you know, your current lifestyle is set up to, to, to default you into the things it defaults you into right now. If you don't try and change some of those things through things like choice architecture, for example, designing your future environment, creating friction in the areas that you really want to get rid of and, and reducing friction in the areas that you, you don't, you know, you want to see more of. If you don't do that, then you are subject to willpower alone and and a lot of people think that is what they need they just think they just think look this time i'm not going to change anything about my plan i'm just going to try a lot harder this time and <laughs> and and that's you know that's what people think and 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 so we we do we run experiments but the, the experiments the experiments only work if people do um if they shift their mindset so i, I take carol dweck's work for example which is actually sort of about education really but it's yeah. about shifting from a fixed mindset of it, do this do that did i lose weight or not because we do with adults and, and children and families and all sorts so did i lose weight or not to what did i learn and how would i change it next time so so all of the if you can shift that from a sort of an extrinsic or, or an extrinsic motivation to an intrinsic so learning rather than just doing uh, or shifting from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset that's when you become curious and and you know excited about when you fail it's disappointing of course but if you know that the failure is actually where all the good stuff is and you're okay about it, you don't have to lie about it to people. You don't have to cover it up. We have a, we have what we call a, a church of fail approach. So you can come with the, fa the failures are where all the good stuff is. We, we celebrate the failures, bring them to us because that's where all the great stuff is. So uh, that's, that's how we do it anyway, without going into too much. It sounds a lot like context matters a great deal yes, in, in all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, context is what matters in every situation, doesn't it? I mean, if if you're not framing behavior change or, or whatever you're trying to do in the context of someone's real life lived experience, it just, for me, it doesn't work. I've seen it. I see people do it even now. Even when we try to support them through this process, people are so fixed in their in their real lives then that they, they can't really change it. And that that's why 
um, habitus, which I mentioned before, is so important. And it's something that's really, really underappreciated in public health. And I think in behavioral science and social science generally, because habitus is about what forms your tastes, preferences and expectations. And it can be overt things that you are aware of. Uh, like what do your friends do etc but it can also be really really subconscious things so you might not even know that you are um, limited in in the way that you you live your life for example because you don't know what's outside of your your lived reality and, and a good example of that for me was going to university and I and I started hanging around with a couple of people who had been to private school here in the UK and just their their frames of reference were completely different and right. their, their their expectations after leaving mine were pretty modest because i'm from a very sort of very working class background uh, from a place in in the uk called luton which is <laughs> it's not known for being you know quite salubrious but but it's um and and then the, the, these guys i was thinking well you know after a while i thought well, we're, we're about as smart as each other so why do you expect to go off and do all these things afterwards and i'm still thinking oh i'll be lucky to get a job after and it was all down to the habitus and thinking about where your tastes preferences and expectations are formed yeah so i know in in your work you you segment some of the people that that are working together into these yeah. these different segments help us understand the the, the rationale behind that so you talked about uh, i know you you have the the busy bodies right so as you're, you're doing that and you're putting people into you know the busy ladies and the busy dogs even for people and you're doing these these different interventions with them what, yeah. what is it about putting them in in these segmented groups that is i uh, helping for that um yeah okay so some of those all of the programs that we run so we have like you say they're busy dogs that's my favorite by the way i, I, love. <laughs> I had to laugh when i, when yes. I got that yeah. you know? busy yeah. dogs is so much fun and we have a dog that comes to work with us every day patsy so so she loved it as well first time she could actually work for a living um yeah but, but the um yeah we segment them so we've got gutless for men for example because men are really underrepresented in weight management for example in the uk generally um if you look at the two big providers weight uh, well, ww now and and slimming world some something between 85 and and 90 uh, percent of their members are women um okay so so it demonstrates that there's that men aren't being served in that market and and we're often targeting people in the lowest socioeconomic groups you know, men in those groups are really hard to target for weight weight management. So we created Gutless, for example, because it had we, we used um, you know evidence and guidance to be able to to do that. But it essentially has a sciencey feel for it. We made it feel sciencey for men, and we said it was about fitness and about you know health and weight. All, all of those things are in there. But we do a fitness test at the beginning, which we don't do on any of our other ones because men love data. And then we did we did a, a sort of a, a much more comedy driven sort of. Um, refer well um advertising campaign so we had our, our, our fat men are gutless and uh, oi fat blokes um you know advertising it's actually a read between the lines campaign so it said oi then so you know are you a man who's a little bit has a bit of extra fat uh something else and then blokes at the end so so it was tongue-in-cheek um but that's the type of stuff that blokes really loved and when they came on you know it was my favorite thing to deliver at the time because dogs didn't exist then because I spent my career making all this stuff, you know, family friendly and working with lots of women and, and uh, over the years. But with the guys, you could just give it to them straight. You could, you know, it was all jokes. It was all, everyone was taking the mickey out of each other the whole time. It was all banter and camaraderie. It was, it was just a lot of fun. And 
men's mental health is something that comes up a lot in that service and it's not something that they can they they find an outlet for very easily particularly well it's getting better now but certainly a few years ago when we started gutless and so we were having people with ptsd come through the services and 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 our our way of um supporting people is completely holistic so we will signpost and handhold and refer people into other services and we're offering helping people get um, you know support for the right benefits or getting um, better employment opportunity, for example. We know that you know being employed is one of the biggest predictors of public health of your, of your health. So, if we could support someone to do that, then we absolutely would do that. But this, uh, sorry, your, your question was about segmentation. But the segmentation matters. You, you can't get blokes to come to a generic program, so we segment them. And you can't. Yeah. And then women said, "We want a no nonsense, gutless style." program for for girls um so we we started well for girls for women so so we started um, busy ladies and then and then dogs was more of a passion project that one wasn't driven by anything other than someone saying it as a joke and me taking it seriously in a meeting and then becoming completely obsessed with it and saying okay you, you and i are going to work on this yeah <laughs> but, but it's not me, a dog weight loss clinic though right it's, it's for people it's with dogs it's for yes, people with dogs go. and i'll tell you the yeah, reason yeah. why because because People with dogs are a pre-made tribe. If you're a dog lover, yeah. and I am, you, you walk down the street, you see a dog, and you smile at it, you say hello to the other person who's, who's walking their dog, you talk to them in the street and all that type of stuff, which is not the done thing in England, by the way. We don't talk to people in the street. <laughs> um, but, the, but, but then the, the, what we hypothesized was that if you bring dog lovers together, you, they've got a buddy to come with, so there's a sort of social buffer there. And for people who otherwise wouldn't want to go to a group, we do dog agility, and, and everyone will, will spend money and do things for their dog that they probably wouldn't for themselves uh, and so they come along to the, the group they know they're going to be with people who they sort of get or who get them because they're doggy people all the behavior change stuff is exactly the same we just do it with eight or ten dogs in the room you know which, yeah. how much fun is that until they all start yeah. barking at something and then it goes wild but that's all, <laughs> it's all fun I used to, we, we used to take our dog when uh, our dog passed away a couple of years ago, but when we had our dog, we'd take it to the dog park and mm. we would do that quite often. And we would know the other people there by, by sight, but we would know them by, they were the, you know, they were um, Chucky's owner or yeah. they were you yeah. know, bandits owner. We, we didn't yeah. know their name. We knew the dog's name. Absolutely. So we had that camaraderie and uh, it's very interesting how, how dog people, as you said, form an immediate tribe. Can, can so, I tell you that that's what I did with busy dogs for, yeah. the, for the first few weeks. I'm terrible at names. I remember the dog's names like that. <laughs> But the, the the people, I was like, oh yeah, it's uh, Millie's mum. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, terrible, terrible. But I, I just, I'm a dog person over a human person, really. So yeah. uh, you talk a lot about getting outside and a lot of the activities. We're just for the sake of broadcast, we're doing this in sort of the first main global wave of coronavirus. Mm. And there's a lot of lockdown. There's a lot of home sheltering. There's a lot of self-quarantining going on. Are there? Uh, how do you address the need to stay home and uh, family weight management uh, c- together? Yeah, it's a big challenge. I mean, it, it, so we are in the UK. We, we've just Today, actually, is when all the schools are closing. So Monday will be the day that, that the, the parents are sort of having to work from home and and everyone's being recommended to work from home anyway if they can. So mm-hmm. that, that's when it's really going to kick off. But there's there's lots of things that are going on. And again, it's a whole systems approach here because the government are giving lots of advice. The BBC and, and other TV channels, for example, are, are changing their programming because a lot of their a lot of their programs can't be filmed because they can't bring people together to, to film them. So they're changing their programming to be more focused on educational stuff in the day for the, for the children. But 
from a from a weight management perspective, we we have various different ideas. We're pivoting all of our services to be able to deliver webinar style delivery, so we don't stop delivering for a start. And one of the things that people are getting a lot more of, Tim, is they're getting a lot more time, and they're getting a lot more time together. And and, and often one of the reasons people aren't healthier, you know, they, they struggle with their health, is because they don't have time to cook. They don't have time to sort of be active or whatever. This is actually, we're trying to reframe this as a bit of an opportunity, an opportunity for connection as a family, to support other people. There's a lot of altruism going on around the UK at the moment and probably around the world, actually. Um, and our advice is very much around, you know, here's some, here's some ideas about how to be active at home. But actually, why don't you share your ideas? Because you're a much better person to share. You know, you're, you're better at, at doing this, really. You're a more credible source than we are in sharing how people got you know how people how people be active how people are coping with being healthy so we're actually trying to encourage peer modeling quite a lot but an example of how we would how we're supporting people by applying behavioral science uh, to the situation is looking at what are going to be the barriers um, and for me one of the barriers is the autoplay function on netflix and, and amazon Prime. <laughs> and so you know we're, we're saying Here's how you can go. So we're giving people the information. Here's how you can disconnect the autoplay feature. You can still binge watch all day if you want to, but why don't you do it knowingly? And if and if we come back to what I was saying before about the planner versus the doer, if you if you make an implementation intention or you make an if-then plan, so if I watch one episode of Stranger Things, I will then go and do this DIY project or I will go with my kids and do blah, blah, or I will do this physical activity or whatever. So that's your planning self. Now, Netflix, the end of a Netflix show is absolutely my, my weakness when it comes to my planning versus doing. I'm like, oh, no, another one's starting. I better st- – oh, it started. And, and so, so if you disconnect that, that's one thing. But it has to come with, with some sort of plan, some rule of thumb that you're going to do. So we would suggest, for example, you disconnect that. You make a plan that you're not going to just watch endlessly. You're going to put you know, a limit on how much you want to watch. You may watch something different, but let's see, you know, what, what parts of it fail and then what, how would you rerun the experiment? But, for example, put the remote for that in the place where you're about to then do the next thing. So increase the friction to watch and decrease the friction to do the next thing. So if it was, uh, I don't know, cleaning the bathroom, for example, it's not a great example, but if, if it was cleaning <laughs> the bathroom, put the remote control in the bathroom right next to all the cleaning stuff. So, the, you know, the, the energy required to clean is you've got the trigger, you've got the visual trigger, you've got all the stuff there, the friction's low, it's just whether you can be bothered to, to do it or not. And, you know, it's one of those things. By the time you actually get somewhere, it's not too much of a problem. It's actually starting that's usually the problem. Yeah, starting I is... I love is, that. Starting yeah. is that that issue. I, I love it. I'm going to start... I'm actually going to probably use that with my kids because right. we do, you know, lately it's it's that, all right, after dinner, whatever it is, we'll sit down and we'll we'll just watch whatever it is and we just get into the auto play of the next one. We watched, I think, three episodes of Lost in Space the other day and it was just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, all of a sudden it's 1030 and I'm going, it's past your bedtime. Oh my God, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah. having that stop and yeah. doing... it. it if nothing else, just getting active and let's, all right, let's everybody get up off of your butt, move around, mm-hmm. let's do something here and, and, and move on and be, be purposeful about it. So I appreciate that. So you have your own uh, podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Behavioral. Um, I'm drawing the real like world behavioral science. Real world. Right. Real world behavioral science. And I know you've done a lot of work with that. But recently, and as Tim mentioned, we're right in the middle of this coronavirus component. And you have a mini series um, with uh, Professor Susan Mitchie oh, okay. and Professor Jim McManus yeah. uh, on the coronavirus, uh, coronavirus and behavioral science. So 
I, I know you say you're not the behavioral scientist here, but you have to have picked up some things on this. So what 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 are some of the things that you've taken away from just that mini series and maybe some of the other elements that you've done with your podcast about how we're responding in this in this uh, time of crisis and what we need to do? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I was approached by Jim, um, who is a... Um, we make that show on on behalf of the um, Behavioral Science and Public Health Network, which mm -hmm. anyone can join, by the way. You guys can join it. It's really cheap to join. And it's a network of people, academics, industry professionals, and um, people from public health who talk about, do conferences on um, behavioral science and it's in its direct application. So it's really good to be a part of. So I make it on their behalf and, and Jim's the chair of that. And he, he said, would you like to make a podcast on this? It looks like a really good idea. So it wasn't actually even my idea, although I would have loved to jumped at the chance. Um, and Susan is, is part of the um, SAGE committee or she's helping advise them. So she's really well placed. And I've been using Susan's work in, in our behavioral science work that we've been doing on busybodies for years through the Combi uh, framework. Yeah, um, she's, so she's great. She's really, really good and very articulate. And listening to them actually humbled me quite a lot because I, I sort of, I'm getting, I, you know, when we first started the show, I was very nervous about doing it. I didn't think I had a place in it. Imposter syndrome, the classic, but actually, you know, if, 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 if the purpose of that is to try and distill what people are saying into something that's actually useful and people can get a hold of understanding in the real world, then that's, that's a good service to, to the industry. And this is no different, really. This is taking, you know, a really robust and um, um, direct look at how can you actually do, it's really for professionals, but it's like, how can you support people that you're working with to, to take, um, effective action during this really crucial time um, because people are people people without without the information that they, they well people weren't getting the information that they wanted from government etc and, and they started to panic and panic buying and all that type of stuff came up so the advice was really simple it was about thing it, it started out that the, you know when a few weeks ago it's only a few weeks ago it feels like a couple of months ago i know uh, doesn't it yeah i know a few weeks ago we were talking about mainly about how to make sure you wash your hands and all the different strategic ways you can do that how to increase how sorry how to decrease the friction for people and increase social cues and all that type of stuff and now we're into much more about preparing for isolation so you know things like if you know, you, it's easy to become quite depressed during a period of isolation, especially if you if you live alone. And but if you know that that's coming, then you can attribute the isolation, the, the feelings of isolation, to the fact that it's about this period in time, not about your general um, state. You know, it's not about your general mental health. It's it's a period in time that will that will come out the end of. Um, and things like self-isolating we're not being mandated to to do that like they are in france and in spain at the moment they're being fined if they go out into the streets for yeah. any purpose other than picking up medicines or food whereas we're not being we're not being forced to do that we're being asked to do that and, and implored to do that by medical professionals because what the government are trying to do here is they're trying to bring people on the journey and then eventually if they need to they've got that level of uh, additional sort of legal um, ramifications but they don't feel like they need to use that right now but they may well do and 
what we're trying to do is frame it as frame it in a way of saying you're doing this for other people. You may, you right. will probably be fine when you when and if you get the virus. But the fact is, we're trying to stop it getting to those people in more vulnerable situations. So Susan said the term uh, "wash your hands for your grand," which I'm not saying is the best marketing slogan, but you know, it's <laughs> it's something. It's something. It's a start. So you know. You know, it it, it has that uh, you know sing songy kind of you know lyrical aspect of it, which so, makes it easier to remember. Yeah. Which makes so it easier to remember and, and and do that aspect of it. I think is really interesting, and I want to go back. You you know, in in the three truths that you talked about, you talked about those two selves. So you have this planning self that can plan for all of these isolation things, but then there's actually the the lived self in those those times, and and as as good as we can plan, we can't always plan for all of the contingencies and and and, and the unexpected emotions that are going to come. So I can see that being uh, a positive, but also there's also that danger of of wow, this is really different than I thought it was going to be, and I planned you know not to have. I didn't anticipate what was going to actually occur in, in in this situation. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. And, and I think it's got a marketing problem as well because we're calling it social distancing. What we should call it is physical distancing. Uh, because oh, well said. Yeah, yeah. social distancing yeah. makes it sound like oh, everyone's going to be on their own. But really, what you see is you see loads of people are finding really creative ways. I'd say people are contacting more people now than they were before they had to socially distance. I, I would have called it physical distancing because I think the branding yeah. is better. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I just the framing of that, it, it implies that that it's social and we should we should stay apart when really it's really about being that physical, making sure that you're far enough away from the other person that the, the virus itself can't can't do that. Yeah. But it, today is is really different than what it would have been even 20 years ago mm. in, in that manner. I mean, we could have picked up the phone and called people 20 years ago, maybe traded emails with them. But the idea that we are so interconnected right now, I mean, what we're doing right now, you're you're in England, Tim's in his office, I'm in mine. We're, we're conducting this interview. We have, you know, video here that we're seeing each other. We're, we're able to talk with that. You have all of those services that are out there. I know my son, I was like, he's 14 and I sit there and I go, how's his life actually going to change? Because the way he get, gathers with his friends, even in normal times is yeah. sitting in his room, uh, you know, having <laughs> playing a video game when, and they're all on the phone chatting and, and yelling at each other as they're playing Minecraft. Right. And I'm going, maybe oh. they're really well suited for it. <laughs> well, well, I mean, jokes aside, that is true. I mean, I, I saw an article that I thought was going this way to say children, you know, or, or young people are, are, perfectly adapted to this they, they 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 do all of their socializing online anyway so just let's just encourage them to game a bit more now that isn't yeah. what we're doing because we want them to be active and we want to do other things but but actually where that article went was that there's a game called uh, i think plague or something like that um where they they can actually run a plague and see, oh my see what happens with it. so they understand it better but i thought actually my version of where I thought this was going was actually much more useful to, to understand, you know, how to get yeah. them to stop spreading, stop potentially spreading uh, any virus. So yes, it's, it's yeah. definitely an interesting time. I mean, we just did a virtual dance class with one of our Zumba, one of our girl, girl, ladies at work, um, at work is a Zumba teacher, and we just did a virtual dance class. So I mean, I was terrible at it, but yeah. <laughs> But I think, again, to that degree, right, we can do some of those things, particularly being active on this. I know um, my wife's cousin is a Pilates teacher, and she's mm -hmm. been doing face 
um, Facebook Live, you know, sessions so people can just do some of these things and get people moving. And I know there's been yoga instructors who have done the same thing. So, mm-hmm. so th- there's there's a, a bright side to to some of this is that we don't necessarily have to be socially isolated, mm-hmm. even though we have to be physically isolated. And I think that's uh, something that we need to really again frame in the appropriate manner so that people aren't going there. We had a we had a, um, a video cast um, choir about, about something like fifty people all online at once doing a, a choir and recording that. I mean, it's fantastic. Oh, Tim, that oh, leads well, right into absolutely, <laughs> Stuart. You've opened a can of worms sure. there. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> what can people do with music to stay active at home in these times? That's a really good question. I mean, the obvious one is dance. Um, it's particularly for for uh, people who who love dance. This is not a problem for them. You know, they can do it on um, video cast with their friends if they want to do that. They could just do it with their family. Um, it's not something I would do, but it, it, I do. But I do. <laughs> I do play the guitar uh, badly. Uh, I've heard you play. I've heard you play the guitar, Tim. So I'm not going to say anything about it. In fact, I, I'm hoping you might cut this bit out. But I do, and and I go and have a little sing song and play the guitar, and 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 I. It's like a little escape. It's a good mental because it, it's about physical activity, but it's also about having having things that stimulate you mentally and that that calm you and and that are good for your mental health. So um, anything like that could be great. Yeah. Yeah. What's on your playlist right now? Um, that's a good question. I I'm listening to a guy called Stephen Fretwell at the moment, who's a northern singer. I mean, he hasn't had an album out, I don't think, for over a decade. I shouldn't think, but I really like it. It's quite dour northern tone he's got but it's really really enjoyable um i love that i mean i'm pretty eclectic i'll listen to anything really uh, and and to be quite honest i think most of the time i listen to books or podcasts at the minute because i find that m- i just can't get enough of if i'm if i'm doing something where i'm doing something else and i've got headphones in I, and i can be learning something I, i'm such a dork now i just constantly want to be learning something i feel like it's almost a wasted opportunity so where music used to be a big part of my life now it's more i'll play music i'll sing and, and whatever every once in a while but really i listen and and, and uh, listen and read more books and, and podcasts i know that's really boring isn't it <laughs> no that, that that sounds very real actually but when you are you talked about being add if you if you're trying to write or you're trying to work you're trying to get something done do you like to listen to music then I do. However, I can only listen to, well, I, I listen to two things if I'm working. And so like when I'm writing the book, for example, I, I will, or if I'm, because of this head of distraction thing, I, I run experiments myself. I have a little sign that I put up that says, I'm not ignoring you. I've got really noise cancelling headphones. So I've bought expensive noise cancelling headphones so that I can't even be slightly distracted by things going on around me if I'm in an office. Um, but I, I listen to two things. I either listen to Rachmaninoff, um, played by an amazing pianist called um, Valentina Lisitsa, um, because I love it. I love the piano. I just absolutely love the piano. And it, and when I've tried to listen to music, even stuff like piano music that's of music that I know, like you know <laughs> Disney tunes or whatever, I find myself getting distracted into the melody of and, and singing the songs in my head. And it's just another opportunity for my brain to ruin my efforts to, to sort of work. Um, and the other thing I listen to is just just white noise. So I listen to rain and thunderstorms, which is oh again, wow, yeah, yeah. It's just white noise is really good for me. Uh, so I, I I go with that. Why does Rachmaninoff work? Well, I mean, other stuff probably would too. I just love the, Rachmaninoff. 
the piano is just so beautiful and it's got such a lot of um different facets to it so it's, it's got really fast and, and furious and some of the the most impressive looking uh playing i've ever seen and then it's also got really um really soft and and um tender bits i, I really i just i just really love it i mean I, I like most things like i say but if it's for work piano music and uh, and craig armstrong actually as well he, he's really good a much more contemporary artist but but he, he's good just just piano on its own no no words can't have words in it because that will definitely distract me yeah wow but but piano on its own is okay you can listen yeah, to piano and, and write or emails or do something like that yeah. uh, without without risk yeah okay absolutely. interesting well Stuart, thank you so much this has been i think wait really- wait Kurt, Kurt, wait 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 i want to talk about tim I've been oh. listening. I, I, what, I, what I didn't mention was that I have been listening this week to Tim's work because I. What have you been listening? What what what? <laughs> uh, which ones? I, I listened to all of the ones that are on your. I wish I'd got it up now. I, I listened to all of the songs that you had on. I think it must be on SoundCloud. Uh, SoundCloud. Oh, yeah, yeah, SoundCloud. Yeah, there's. And then I watched some videos of you as well gigging as well. I don't think this comes up enough actually. Um, so <laughs> I yeah. I think I think this is enough. No, I think, I think some more. I, I think you should sing something, Tim. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't you think so, Kurt? Have you time for that? So. I think so. <laughs> oh, look, we're out of time. Oh, no. What a shame. <laughs> I think I think we're going to have to throw, uh, uh, you know, Tim's music in and, uh, at the end of this. We'll just have to have him, you know, play. And uh, if, you have, if you didn't know Tim had loads of music out, go and Google it, listen to it. It's really good country music. There you go, Tim. There's a plug for you. Yeah, you know, I, Eric, Stuart, I was Americana. So- there you go. I was loving this conversation with you, Stuart, until it just took a, this a total dive. This is, is like the peak of the back. This is a compliment. I enjoyed it. You are you, he's talking about how good this is. Yeah, I even sent it on to one of my friends yeah. who, who oh. loves Nathan Carter, and I said, "Oh, check check out this this guy. What do you think?" I thought I'd get some objective uh, some objective reviews from a country music lover. Uh, and she said, yeah, great, really good. Well, who is he? And I was like, oh, yeah. And she said, is he into behavioral science as well? Because you must have read something about you. And I was like, yeah. She went, how random? I went, well, it's not that random. I'm talking to him on Friday. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a small world. Yeah. So. It is. And, and you, were, you I, just, you know, Tim said it went down. It just, it just ramped up for me. <laughs> the, the That's what I was looking for. To begin with, but man, it uh, went up level, you know, yeah. it went up to 11. I wanted, you, I wanted you to have a good time because I listened to Adam Henson's review the other day and that was so intricate. The, the music talk was so intricate. I was like, oh my God, I, I've got nothing to add compared to this guy. <laughs> oh, that, that was so much fun. Yeah. That conversation with Adam Not, not for Kurt. Kurt, Kurt was silent. Kurt, Kurt was <laughs> I know it's it's one of the only times. <laughs> All right, Stuart, thank you so much. Thank you so much, man. No, no, yeah, we really appreciate your, your time. No, it's been a real pleasure. I absolutely love your show. So um, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. I'm thinking about you all the time. Thinking about love, gonna make it shine. Thinking how time gonna change our life thinking about you baby all the time welcome to our grooving session where tim and i sit back and we groove on topics that were inspired by our conversation with Stuart and whatever else comes into our 
dog riddled what the hell minds. <laughs> so you like the what the hell effect? Was that- I did like the what the hell effect. <laughs> I, actually, I don't like the what the hell effect, but oh, it is yeah. a really important piece that I think uh, Stuart brought up that we don't often talk about. Right? We don't we don't think about the what the hell effect that often, and yet no. I think it's a really big piece of why people stop doing. Uh, some habits and behaviors because what the hell I ate the donut. It was in the, in the, you know, in the break room. And now I just threw out the entire day. So I might as well have that piece of pizza or three pieces of pizza or 10 pieces of pizza. And hell, I might as well have some ice cream with that as well. That you just rhymed that, by the way. That was really beautifully done. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that. But I yeah, rhymed. You just rhymed with hell and well, so that was very, very well done. I, but I, the, I, I wouldn't be able to tell. The what if the hell I had done that very well. <laughs> For me, the what the hell effect totally separates everything that we talked about uh, as just being a really insightful thing because it's like we have this magical uh, superstitious kind of thinking, you know, the black hat crosses our path and then, Oh, can't, you know, can't do anything else. We break the mirror. We can't do anything else. And so it's a really common human thing, but gosh, Stuart dives into this idea that it's in our failures that we find all the good information. Right. Oh, yeah. if, if we don't actually plumb the, okay, things went bad, it failed. We, we It didn't go the way that we thought it was going to go. If we don't take time to plumb that and really dive into it, we're really missing out where all the goodies are. And I, well, I really love that. And again, we, we go back, we talked with Michael Hallsworth. And oh, yeah. A lot, yeah. Of, a lot of the great insights that he brought in were, hey, we learn from the failures of these experiments that we do. And I think uh, one, corporations probably don't do that enough. But I think really the big piece is that we as individuals don't put that lens on ourselves. So we don't look at where we messed up and take a hard look at what that failure, what caused that failure. So again, going to a donut in a, in a break room and I ate that donut, yeah. what led to that was it was it just the environment was it because that donut was in the break room the was context. it because was yeah. it because i was super stressed and that donut was there and that it relieved my stress was it because i was hungry because i hadn't eaten anything earlier in the day uh, and i needed something from sustenance all of those factors we we need to look at that to understand what it was that had that breakdown happen and we don't do that. We just go on and on and just live our lives without ever really being reflective on that. Not everybody. I, I don't mean to speak to all of our listeners out there, but we do. I do at least often. And I need to take the time to really stop, look where those failures happened yeah. and understand what led up to that failure so I can hopefully plan better for that and prepare for that so it doesn't happen again. That led me into thinking about his comment that um, he said it so beautifully, your current lifestyle is set up to default you into the things that you're defaulting into. (laughs) Isn't that a great line? It is a fantastic line. And it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. It's homological, right? So that when when we use a word to, to define 
you know, the word, we use the same word, you know, it, it that, that's homological, which is great as far as I'm concerned. I don't see anything, I don't see a problem with that here. That was a big word. <laughs> I like it, but I, I didn't, I learned something today, right here, right now. I learned. You should have paid more attention in English class. <laughs> yeah. I can't pronounce words. I, I forget words. You know this. This is me. All right. To that point, though, the setting up, you know, your current lifestyle set up to default into things that you're defaulting into doing, I think is so, uh, it's such a apparent thing, yet we, again, don't notice that. Mm -hmm. And so, when we do the same habits over and over, we do the same things over and over and over again, do we look to say, how is our lifestyle set up to really drive us into those? And what can we do in order to change that? Yeah, because to a large degree, we are making the decisions to create a lifestyle that that enables those decisions to, to make it easier. To re, we try to reduce friction in the short term so that so that we can get through life, and that ends up having very long term implications. And what, what's that statement? Um, if you always do the things that you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Right? <laughs> that, that was beautifully said. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Once in a while, Tim. Once in a while, I come through. I didn't make that up. But it was somebody else that said had said that. Well, and I, and just to to do the same thing and expect a different outcome is insanity. Right? So it, those it, those two things go together perfectly. They go together perfectly, and yet we often default to that lifestyle and think that somehow we're going to magically change. Right. Right. And I think that we have to think about the choice architecture that we design for our own lives. How do we create friction in those spots where we don't currently have it because the default is not to have it when we may need it, i.e. eating that donut, or reduce some friction in order to do those things that we aren't doing that we need to do such as exercising more or eating more healthily. And as we've always talked about, willpower in itself is not enough. And that's what Stuart brought up. Right, right. It really isn't. And this connects to this idea that if we don't have a growth mindset, we can kiss a goodbye because we have to be intentional. We have to be deliberate if we're going to actually make these changes to get out of the defaults that we're building into our life. Right. And- A piece of this is understanding what those defaults are. Again, going back to what we talked about with, you know, failure is where all the good information is. Yeah. yeah. When we take a look back at our lives, where are those failures? What are the defaults that have led us into those failures? Again, Mm -hmm. failures being not in alignment with my long-term goals, because oftentimes Failures are actually just short-term satisfactions that detract from our long-term objectives that we're trying to achieve. So what are the defaults that are set up that allow those failures to occur? And what can we do in order to change those defaults? Right. What are the structural changes that we can make? Yeah, absolutely. Kurt, what what else got your attention in our conversation with Stuart? Well, again, he talked about the whole systems approach, really looking at how all these aspects are interconnected. And he brought up the idea that when you 
you know, your home life and your work life, they're interconnected. You can bring in your friends, all of those facets that the behavior that we elicit in our life is not in a vacuum. It It mm-hmm. is in part determined by our emotional and social responses that we have with these other aspects within our lives. So if you're a corporation and you're trying to change the behavior of your employees to discount or to disregard the impact that somebody's home life has on that behavior change initiative is a little bit foolhardy. It's a little bit of Pollyanna thinking. Uh, yes, you can probably trudge through and, and do different pieces and you'll get some behavior change, but you can leverage that behavior change much more if you understand this whole systems approach. What are the social influencers that people are listening to? What's going on in people's home life? What's going on in the society as a whole? All of those factors come into play into how we are responding to initiatives and and changes that are going to take place within an organization. Yeah. So we're trying to decouple things that seem to naturally go together. And I think that before the industrial revolution, uh, we had a, a economies that were built on people working very, their work and home life being very closely integrated. The farmer walks outside of uh, his or her house and there's the field. The, the blacksmith used to walk out of their house into the forge because it was all connected. That, that home and work life were almost seamlessly integrated. And the industrial revolution comes along and now we say, no, you're going to get up, you're going to leave your home, you're going to go to work, you're going to go and do this job and then you're going to come home. And that that's trying to change something that evolutionarily is built into our DNA that's going to be hard to decouple. So there's a part of me that asks, why are we trying so hard to decouple work and life when it might just be better for us to look from a systems approach? Just look at it holistically. Yeah. And when you think about how we respond, our emotional response is is still an emotional response, whether it's yeah. work. Yeah. Whether it's light, uh, our family, whether it's friends, if we get pissed off, we get pissed off. If we get happy, we're happy. Those are not the emotional responses that we have are not dependent upon the situation that we're in. We are responding from an emotional core that we have as an individual. And to, to say that it's different you know, we have to put in system two thinking in order to overcome that. Yeah, we have to exactly. we have to really be you know conscious about the way we're responding. And some people probably do that in a work situation. We don't respond with our initial. We hold back, which actually can be you know detrimental, as we've talked with Liz Fosling about exactly. uh, emotions at work. So, given all of that. I think this whole systems idea is really important and one that we should be thinking about ourselves as we're going through our day in day life. And even as we talked about that, you know, the defaults that were set up, what are the defaults that are set up within this whole system? Yeah, they make a difference. I also liked uh, when we started talking about tips on on how to kind of get through life. And uh, I think I think you would agree that one of the best tips was to to uh, stop the autoplay function on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and I have not done that and I fell into the whole thing. Oh no. You, I was telling you a little bit earlier I watched it. God, I can't even you know and this is the bad part, right? Because it was on autoplay. It, I 
I watched the show until 2 a.m. the other night, and now for the life of me, I can't even remember what the damn show is. You don't even remember it. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Hours, hours of time spent on something that is not memorable for you. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, yeah, because- The auto play on Netflix was set up and counted down three, two, one, boom, next episode. There it is. And I, oh, all right. I didn't stop that and and make myself, all right, do I really want to watch that next episode? It just, it's much easier to just let it roll. Yeah. Well, the nice twist on that for me was when Stuart said that starting is the hardest thing. And what Netflix has done has is reduced all the friction when it comes to starting. They made it really, really easy just to keep going and, and not have a start. And that makes me think about what are the things we talk about. We've talked about habits. We, you know, Katie Milkman had a great discussion with her about habits and if and then statements. And if we can reduce the friction in starting that next thing, we can make better habits. We could do a tiny habit like, like BJ Fogg, where every time he goes to the bathroom, he does a push-up. That's just part of it. And that's a really great, great way of reducing the start friction. But sometimes we want to add friction in, in the case of a Netflix, where it's a behavior that we don't want. And so if that start friction has been reduced, then we're more likely to fall into that bad habit. So we have to look at our lives again looking at that default setting that we have and what are those things where we should be adding friction in and where are those things that we should be taking friction out in order to improve our long-term health, mental uh, sanctity, our overall social interconnections with others. What are those, how can you design your life to get the most out of it in the best possible way? Absolutely. I got a musical question for you. Oh, oh, I am so <laughs> ready. Y- yeah. Excited. No, just go. Just go. <laughs> well, well, when we were with Stuart, we talked about how music can be stimulating and calming. Yeah. Right. We've talked a lot about how music can be priming, but I wanted to ask you specifically about how do you use music to calm or stimulate? What What are the musical primes that you use to prime or or create calming or stimulating environments? Yeah, I think music has a big impact on the emotional state that we're in. We've talked about this. You know this all the time. I think there is an energy that comes from music that induces more of a calming impact or more of inducing some energy impact. Mm-hmm. However, I I have a and, and it's probably just me. I'm probably unique in this where sometimes or maybe calm, not. <laughs> sometimes to calm myself down, I will listen to what I think other people would say is very aggressive angry music that you would typically think of if you want to get yourself uh, going and and you know kind of wow. spur some things and and it does that for me to a certain degree and i'm just thinking of this on the spot so it's not a well-formed out hypothesis here but it does that because it allows me to uh express that angst or anger that i have through the music which actually reduces that rest of it in my life so it calms me it allows me 
it also allows me to say, hey, my life isn't so bad. Look at how shitty these people are if they are <laughs> writing and right. talking about this type of music and in, in the lyrics and the type of music that they're doing. Uh, God, my life can't be nearly as bad as theirs. So right. I, that that works for me. What about for you? What, what do you use? I mean, how do you discern between calming and and music that actually induces more energy? I tend to be more symmetrical or predictable that when I'm interested in something calming, I really look for a piece of music that is very specifically calming. I want something that is uh, going to lower my heart rate and okay. uh, actually put me uh, into more of an easy meditative kind of state. So I, I look for pieces of music um, that would do that. Why, why do you think certain music does that? What about the music helps reduce that heart rate, puts you into that more relaxed mode. Is there something about how the music is structured Yeah, that yeah. does that? Do you know any research around that? Any just guesses off the top of your head? No, there's, there is neuroscience around the structure of music, the way particular chords go. It's sort of like the way we can listen to uh, Bach's Ninth Symphony, that da-da-da-da, um, mm-hmm. and we know instantly that that's really aggressive. Okay, I have no idea where that came from because... What I was thinking about was Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Nothing about Bach. My apologies for the terrible error. You know, and it's dark, and mm. uh, it it ends on that uh, minor chord. Uh, starts with those majors and ends on that minor chord. And so our ears hear what a minor chord is, and we know that a minor chord is just going to be sadder, and a major chord is going to be happier. Hmm. And uh, and so uh, the neuroscience behind it says we're kind of predictable in that way. Uh, you know, a minor sixth has got particular attributes. A, a major seventh major feels kind of fluffy and warm, and uh, huh. those kinds of things. Yeah, suspended I, I, a suspended fourth feels like I'm waiting. I'm still hmm. in anticipation. So there are all those aspects, and those are linked to neuroscience. You know, I have no idea what you were talking about there in any of those musical things, but it sounds really intelligent and good. So I'm, I'm, I'm running with it. Uh, I do have one more question on this. So, um, and I'm kind of joking. I actually don't have any idea what an extended fourth is, but that's, that's okay. Suspended um, fourth. Suspended fourth. See, I can't even get the name right. But do you think there's an aspect of this that goes back to some part of our evolutionary uh, makeup, right? That in nature are soothing sounds like uh, waves on a beach, um, rustle of a soft breeze. Are they different tonal things than a crunch of a potential predator coming up on us or a growl? or different pieces. I, I don't know. I mean, any any thoughts on that? I don't have a particular um, fixed perspective on that, but I've read research that says it the, the way that humans relate to chords and sounds comes from nature, mostly from birds. Oh. Yeah, because there's something very tonal and sonic about those. And we can hear happy sounds in birds and, and sad sounds in birds. And and we know that. So, mm. you know, that we've come to recognize, oh, when that when we hear that bird sound, that's actually a happy sound. Or when we hear that bird sound, that other one, that that's a very sad one. But that said, I don't know if that is the case. I don't okay. think that that's 
proven, so to speak. That's theoretical <laughs> at this point. Okay. Well, very, very cool. See, wh- where we go with behavioral grooves, we go on the weirdest rabbit holes, uh, you know, all the time. Yes, it's we what's, do. It's what's fun about this. And that's why we should thank our listeners for listening to all of this. <laughs> <laughs> if they've actually listened this long into this and didn't turn it off, like, you know, 15 minutes ago when we started our grooving session because, you know. Yeah. We're the yeah. boring part of this, yeah. I know. Well, All right. but stay tuned for our bonus track. That's coming up in just a sec. This is Tim with our bonus track for the episode with our guest, Stuart King. Our conversation with Stuart focused mainly on the key elements that are necessary to making applications of behavior change successful, like the way the whole systems approach is being promoted in the UK to change eating and exercise habits at local levels, not through edicts and policies at the national level. And for those who aren't familiar, the whole system thinking tries to understand how things are related and how they influence one another with a whole system. Stuart is a big believer in this approach and sees how many aspects of the system play a role in the fight against obesity. We also discuss Pierre Bourdieu's habitus concept, which is built on the key ways that individuals perceive the social world around them and how they respond to it. Linked to that were some comments about Carol Dweck's growth mindset and how behavior change is dead in the water without it. Lastly, Stuart brought up the important role that defaults play in our lives. He went so far as to say something like, your current lifestyle is set up to default you into the things that you're defaulting into. And it may seem a bit homological to use that word to define the very thing that you're defining, but we get it. The lives we live are based on decisions that we've made to reduce friction in the short term, but may not actually contribute to our well-being in the long run. Our brains prefer running on defaults, but the defaults we've created may not be good for us. And that leads us to this week's groove idea. We tee up a groove idea in each week's episode so that you have something to think about, something that you can apply to your life, or something you can just say, hey, I learned something today. Well, our groove idea for this week is this. Think about a few decisions that you've made today. Not all of them, but just a few that you thought you were making in terms of decisions that you made today. Maybe you decided to clean the bathroom. Maybe you decided to watch a second or third episode of that trashy Netflix series that everyone's talking about. Maybe you decided to have a second helping of fettuccine or go for a run after you woke up. Whatever decisions you made today, our groove idea for you is to ask yourself this. To what degree were those decisions influenced by the default options and habits you've got going in your life? With that, we hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening and keep on grooving.